Calvary Baptist Church podcast, where we share weekly sermons from our church services. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. We are a multi-generational family church located in the heart of Little Rock. Calvary's mission is to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples. Whether you've long been part of our church family or are tuning in for the first time, we hope our podcast provides the same kind of welcoming space you'd find here on Sunday mornings. Most of all, we hope this space helps you engage God's Word and grow in your faith. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 is one of the more famous passages of Scripture in the Bible, and in part because it's the passage where we first read about the Ten Commandments. And so... If you've been with us lately, you know that we are working through the book of Exodus, and I've decided as we've come to the Ten Commandments to just kind of slow down and take each one, one at a time. And so last week, we studied the very first commandment, first of the ten, and it's found in verse three of Exodus 20. And these, I'm going to read this one as we go through today's study, which will be the second commandment, because they really go hand in hand and are part of the same theme. So verse 3, we'll start with the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And last week we talked about how important that is. There is only one true God, and we are so privileged to know him, and we worship him and him alone. But then we come to this week's commandment. Starting in verse 4, it says, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. And so here we have two commandments really uh, with very similar themes. The first one basically says, do not worship other gods And then the second commandment says, do not make images of God or other gods. I think one way we can think about this is the first commandment is prohibiting the worship of the wrong God. And the second commandment is prohibiting the worship of God in the wrong way. And so there's a lot of, of, of things, kind of nuances to this, particularly the second commandment that I think we need to, to think about and dive into today. I don't think we can fully understand it, however, either one of these, unless we enter into the world, uh, the biblical world and the biblical worldview of which these commandments were given. And it's a, a worldview that was very uh, polytheistic. We have to understand that at the time that this commandment was given, the world, almost all the nations and people groups in the world believed in many gods and goddesses. And so when God called the Israelites out of Egypt and to himself, he was also calling them to monotheism, to believe in him as the one true God and only him, and then to worship him in the right ways, not like all of the other people groups worship their gods and goddesses. And as we kind of move into the New Testament world, we see the same 
belief system, the same worldview. Almost everyone except for the Jews and then the Christians were polytheists. And there were many gods and goddesses. And uh, if we think about this worldview and we kind of get to know what their lives were like and what they believed, we see that they had many statues, many shrines, many altars, uh, even temples. Some even had priesthoods to the, that went with those temples. That was how they worshipped. And they believed that their god or goddess actually inhabited the statue or the monument or dwelt in the temple. And so you could go to those places, those statues, those monuments, those shrines, and you could uh, speak to the God and relate to the God, and you could pay homage to the God or do something for the God, like leave a, a food sacrifice or a drink sacrifice. And you knew that the God was there and that the God was hearing your request or receiving your offering. As we get to the New Testament world, I think the best way for us to understand the mindset is to think about these gods. They, they had a lot of human-like qualities, and yet they had these uh, superhero powers. Kind of think about them almost like we think of our superheroes, the the characters that we have movies about and magazines about. They were kind of that way. They would, uh, basically, these gods were very human and that they were very selfish. They were very self-indulgent. They were very sensual. They were very sexual. They needed food. They needed drink. And so that was part of how the people worshipped them and serviced them by bringing these sacrifices of food and drink, and they were often engaged in battle for supremacy with each other and uh, for strength over the other. And they were really gods that you needed to, to kind of appease. You didn't want to make them mad, and you certainly wanted them on your side. So all of the religion kind of went in this direction. You were trying to either appease them or get them to show you uh, favor. And so this is really the world that we're talking about that these Ten Commandments were in, both in the Old Testament with the Egyptians and then the Canaanites, and then we move into the New Testament with the Greco-Roman religion. All of it was really pretty similar in this way. I think we can learn some things about the first century world, especially in all of this idolatry and the way they worship their idols, by reading a passage where Paul actually was in first century Athens. And first century Athens was that classical city. It was the cradle of democracy. It was a center of education and learning. It's where philosophy got its start. And it also was a major cultural center. Uh, and it was a major religious center. Paul ends up going to Athens kind of unexpectedly, and he's waiting on the rest of the missionary team to join him. And so he's walking around the city, and he's observing all of their idols. He's looking at all of these statues, all of these shrines, all of these monuments, 
all of these temples. And uh, it breaks his heart. The Bible says he's very distressed by it. And so what does he do? He immediately goes to the marketplace and begins to preach about Jesus. He begins to share the gospel with the Athenians. And while he's doing that, we're told that some of these philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics, showed up and they heard him. And in, in their minds, it was strange stuff that he was talking about, this strange teaching. And so they invited him to come to the Areopagus, a high place in Athens. It was where their high court would meet. But here, it wasn't really a, a court case or anything like that. They just wanted to, to learn more. And so Paul goes to the Areopagus and we read these words. You can read them in Acts 17. I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs of his speech. This is what he says as he's, after he's been walking around. He basically says, you know, I've been in your city and I've noticed how religious you are. And I've seen all of your, your shrines. I've seen your statues and your altars and your temples. And he said, one of them happened to, to say to the unknown God. And the God that you don't know, I actually know, and so I'm going to make him known to you now. And that's how he, he starts his, his speech. And in verse 24 of Acts 17, he says, Then God who made the world, the God who made the world and everything in it, is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Meaning he's the creator God. He doesn't reside in these man-made houses or temples. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. He doesn't need anything from us, Paul is telling them. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else they need. He's the one who is the life sustainer, the life giver. And then he says, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. He made me, Paul says, he made you, Athenians. He, he is sovereign. He's given you all that you have. And he said, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. In other words, this God I'm telling you about is a relational God, and he wants a relationship with you, and he has a relationship with me and his other followers. And then we look down at verse 29. He says, Therefore, since we're God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Now, the reason I'm really reading this passage today is because of that verse. We're seeing there, again, Paul is saying he doesn't live in human man-made statues. Or when you've taken gold and you've shaped it into an object. He doesn't inhabit that object. Or a, a temple, a shrine, or an altar made of stone. God doesn't dwell in those things, those human images. And then he's kind of point blank in verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. Just telling it like it is. This is foolish thinking. This is really Foolish belief, he's telling them. And he, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world 
with the justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And so now we know Paul is about to start talking about Jesus, the resurrected Son of God. Well, this helps us to begin to understand a little bit about the context, the world of idolatry. And as we think about first century idolatry, and really it relates to the Old Testament idolatry as well, there were religious images everywhere. There was this ongoing need for superstitious religious rituals, constant concern for seeking and gaining a God's favor, frequent visits to shrines, altars, and temples. There were really no moral boundaries attached to this type of religious system, and the culture was completely immersed in this empty religion. And so that's what, we're, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about idolatry. I've kind of written a little, it's a fictitious character, but I want us to take a, maybe shadow a first century pagan, if you will. Let's, let's shadow him for a day. I've named him Petronius. So this is pagan Petronius. Petronius gets up early in the morning and begins his day by paying homage to his household god sitting on the hearth above the fireplace in his home. So he makes sure that he offers a sacrifice to them as part of his breakfast. He takes part of his breakfast and puts some of the food and pours some of the drink into the fireplace, into the fire, before he leaves the house, thus assuring him that his family gods will protect his home while he is away for the day. Then Petronius makes his way to work And while he's en route, he's going to stop at a couple of local shrines along the way. He offers prayers to one goddess who has a statue on one street corner. And then he burns some incense at an altar to another god on another street corner. And when he comes to the major intersection, he sees that there are all of these kind of informal shrines where people have put some flowers in honor of a god or there's some, a plate with some food or some drink offering there or some kind of trinket symbolizing their god all along these different streets. And so the one that he's taking, the one that goes to his place of work, he'll stop and pour out a little food offering to make sure that he has safe travels, that the gods will, of that street will help him get to work and show him their favor. When he gets to work, before he actually starts the work day, he's part of a local guild, a trade guild, that will have a patroness god or goddess. And so they start their work day with a worship ceremony. And as part of that ceremony, all of the employees are asked to offer some type of gift to honor the god in gratitude for his or her provision. After work, pagan Petronius immediately stops off at his local bar where he quickly gets stone-cold drunk to pacify the emptiness of his life. Next, he stumbles his way into one of the nearby brothels where he has sexual relations with a prostitute. Finally, on his way home, he stops at the supermarket, gets some meat, and then stops at one of the nearby temples where he offers the meat and a priest comes and prays kind of a, a, a chant over the offering. Then the priest takes half of the meat, 
and gives it back to Petronius and says, the God has heard your prayers. Go in peace. He will show you his favor for the next few days. Finally, he gets back home. It's now dark. And he stumbles into his house where he is greeted. He first greets his household gods and thanks them for their protection of his home. Then he greets his wife and kids as they hungrily devour the meat that he brings home. And he tells them the meat comes from such and such God or goddess. And we're sharing this meal with him or her. He's promised his favor upon us. And then Petronius drags himself off to bed to get a few hours of sleep. But before he goes to sleep, he checks his calendar to see when the next feast day is, when the next festival was, because the festivals were really what life was all about, where they would worship these gods and goddesses and the state would actually, the, the, the country, the nation would buy the meat, the government. And so they could all feast together and all get drunk together and watch games, athletic competitions or theatrical performances or occasionally even gladiatorial matches. It was a day to live for. And then he drifts off to sleep, wakes up early the next morning, and starts this empty routine all over again. And pagan Petronius was known by his family, friends, his employees, his neighbors, to be a very religious and a very godly man. That's the world that we're talking about. And that's the world that was trying to be countered by God in these commandments. The first commandment, have no other gods before me. Worship me and only me because I am the one true God. And then he's also countering worshiping him in the wrong way. All of these images, all of these superstitious rituals, and so forth. Well, what do we do with this? How does this intersect with our world? 21st century world and this 21st century Christianity. Let me just ask some questions. Is it okay for us to have Christian images of art? Is it okay for us to have Christian statues like in a prayer garden? Is it okay for us to have Christian architecture? Is it okay for us to have stained glass windows? Is it okay for us to have Christian symbols like a cross? I mean, these are images. Is this a violation of what God has prohibited in um, the second commandment? Well, we're all saying, boy, we sure hope not. <laughs> and the truth is, uh, I think the answer is yes, it is okay. Uh, in one evidence, we could meet uh, two men, Bezalel and Aholiab. And we're going to actually meet them later in Exodus, starting in Exodus 31. And these are men who are great craftsmen, great artists, great architects. And they're enlisted by God to build the, the tabernacle. And as part of building the tabernacle, there are all of these beautiful items that they're going to make. They make this beautiful lampstand. They make a, an altar of incense. 
Uh, they make a table for the priest to put the bread. They make a, a wash basin, all of it uh, gold-plated. They make an, an altar for sacrifices out in the courtyard. They make the Ark of the Covenant, incredibly beautiful chest with these angelic cherubim that are overseeing the altar uh, of the ark. So we see that God is endorsing artistic craftsmanship and that this is not what he meant when he prohibits images. And so, but we also need to begin to understand that those were for a tabernacle, which was really God's portable house in the Old Testament that the Israelites built. And then that tabernacle becomes a blueprint for a permanent house of God called the temple. Same footprint, same blueprint was used for the temple. But then things kind of change. We find out that God eventually leaves the temple. Why? Because his people had become idolatrous. And so he no longer dwells in the temple. We're told when we get to the New Testament, Jesus tells us that we worship God in a different way now. Not in a house, not in a building. We worship him in spirit and in truth. And so things have changed. And then we get to the New Testament. We also find out that God has a new temple. You know what his new temple is? It's the bodies of believers. He now lives through his Holy Spirit in each and every believer. So buildings have changed. And the significance of buildings have certainly changed. Let's think about our building for just a moment because I think this is a, maybe a possible application. Look for a moment at all of our, look at our stained glass windows. They're over here or up here. Absolutely beautiful. And they're symbols. The lamb is a symbol of the lamb of God. The dove is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. We have scriptures at the bottom that point that out. And then, of course, we have this beautiful cross. Um, look at the high ceiling. Kind of lifts our eyes up, up. That's the purpose of a high ceiling. Lifts our eyes towards the heavens, towards God. It's got the beautiful woodwork and the wood arches. That's rem reminiscent of the, some of the ancient cathedrals. We've got the, the windows at the top letting in natural light. Light's always been a symbol of God and his glory. Um, we've got the, the baptistry. We've got this beautiful cross up here. We have in the back the bell tower. Sandy rings that faithfully for us each week, signaling to the community that we are gathering to, to worship King of kings and the Lord of lords. We've got a steeple outside. It's absolutely beautiful. Towering above the heights. Showing the heights. That, the, that God is the one to be looked up to and to be worshipped. It's a beautiful building. So is it okay for us to have all these things? I would say absolutely yes. But here's where I think we have to be careful. If we ever start thinking of this building as a holy place, I think we're crossing the line. If we start thinking of this building as 
having some kind of sense of sacredness, I think we're crossing the line. Yes, we worship a holy God who inhabits not just this place, but all places. And we're filled with a holy people who are doing it. We need to remember the building itself is just a building. It's special and it's beautiful as it is. It's just a building. If we start overemphasizing a building, we've crossed the line. We need to remember the most holy part of this building today is you. Because the Holy Spirit resides in you. Now for me, how do we live this out? One thing for me is, you might have noticed, I like to, prefer, to refer to this building as the worship center. And that actually predates me. It's on our external signage before I even came. I don't call it a sanctuary. Sanctuary is probably the most common term used by people to describe their worship auditorium and place. It's, but if you take that term literally, sanctuary means a holy place. And I think that's very misleading. And so we have to be careful with our terminology. Now, it's fine if you want to keep using that term. Just make sure you're using it in a way that is simply just describing a building not something where God resides in holiness. It's a fine line, but I think it's a very important point. Let's think about symbols, like the cross. Have this beautiful cross here. We have crosses on the edge of the pews, the sides of the pews. We have a beautiful cross on our steeple outside. Some of you are actually wearing a cross necklace or frequently wear a cross necklace. Some of you carry a cross in your pocket. Is that okay? I would say absolutely yes. Christians for 2,000 years have been using the cross as a beautiful symbol of their faith. And one thing I would say, if you wear a cross, if somebody mentions it or notices it, uh, take an opportunity to testify. Don't just say thank you for their compliment if they give you a compliment, but say, yeah, this cross represents the most important person in my life. It's my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you believe in Jesus? It's a great way to enter into a, a, a gospel conversation. It's a testimony. Wear it in that way. Here's where we cross the line. If your cross that you're wearing or carrying becomes, in some sense, a good luck charm. And I actually fear that a lot of our athletes use the cross in this way. You'll see a lot of athletes wearing a cross while they're participating in their sport. If they think in some way wearing that cross is going to give them some extra power, some supernatural support to play a good game, or if they think in some way that it's going to help them win and somebody else lose, or if they think in some way it's going to protect them, then that's crossed the line. That's exactly what the pagans did with their symbols and their images. And we should never think of God in that way through any kind of inanimate object. So that's kind of a, a boundary for us. Last thing I'll mention is what about artwork? 
We think of images, we often think about artwork. Is it okay to paint God or to paint Jesus? Well, first of all, it's kind of hard to paint God, right? I think people have tried. It's usually pretty abstract. But we have more to work with with Jesus, right? Is it okay to paint Jesus? Well, I think so, but we have to understand we do not know what Jesus looked like, right? We don't. We're just, it's just the artist's imagination. And um, here's some things, though, we do know from Scripture. Uh, well, first of all, when we see Jesus, we're usually seeing a dashingly good-looking Jesus, often clean-shaven with long hair, Right? Well, here's what we know from Scripture. We think Jesus likely had a beard. Isaiah 50, verse 6, we believe is a passage, a messianic passage, describing Jesus. And at least at the time when he was going to the cross, it says he, um, his cheeks he offered to those who pulled out his beard. So he had a beard at least at that point in his life. He likely did not have long hair. Based on 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen, if a man has long hair, Paul said, this is a first century Jewish virtue, basically. Uh, he says it's a disgrace to, to a man, but if a woman has long hair, it's to her glory. Jesus lived in that first century Jewish context, probably did not have long hair. He likely was not a physically attractive person. Again, a messianic prophecy in Isaiah 53, 2 says he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And that's just like God. If this is talking about Jesus, God never emphasizes the external, does he? The outward appearance. He always emphasizes the heart. So when we think about Jesus and we see these portraits of Jesus, we need to think about his spiritual qualities and his spiritual character and his spiritual heart. Last thing, he likely, Jesus did not, likely did not have white skin and blue eyes. Common sense tells us Jesus was a first century Middle Eastern man, a Jewish man of Semitic descent. Therefore, he likely had a tan, olive-toned skin with dark hair and brown eyes. So again, it's not about the external, it's about the internal qualities, like humility, like Jesus' compassion, like his love, like his selflessness, like his servant heart, like his spiritual discipline, like his devotion to the Father, like his sacrificial love for us, like his spirit-filled, spirit-anointed, spirit-empowered lifestyle. That's what we celebrate. That's what we look to. And a lot of our artists do pull that out as they are painting Jesus. You know, there are two acceptable, legitimate uh, images for knowing God in Scripture. Here they are. Genesis 1.27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. So when we're looking at fellow human beings, we are looking in some way at someone who is a reflection of our God. So we see God in each other. And it matters how we treat each other because of that. We also see God, Colossians 1.15, our greatest image is through Jesus. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And so when we live our lives and we 
look for images to guide our lives, we look to him. We worship him in spirit and in truth, he tells us. And we know that if we follow him, the one true God, and worship him and only him, and we worship him in the right way, we will experience him to the full. And then we do receive all of his amazing and wonderful blessings. Let's pray. Father, as we bow our hearts, we symbolically bow our heads before you today. And Father, we do thank you for your word that guides us in all truth. Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word, especially through Christ. Jesus told his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen my Father. We want to see you fully, Lord. We want to be a church that fully knows you, fully sees you, and that others see you in us. Help us to be that kind of church. Help us to be that kind of person. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. If you don't already have a church home, we invite you to join us in person each Sunday morning. Our contemporary worship service is at 9 a.m. and our traditional service is at 11.15. For more information, be sure to check out our website, cbclr.org.